Let's just make sure it's recording. Not tonight. You're not on the list. Hello, I'm Connor McLoon and welcome to the brand new podcast, You're Not On The List, where I interview and dive deep into the lives of those in the music industry. From artists to event organisers and promoters to label owners, we take a look at the early life and careers of those in the scene. My guest this week is Rich Reason, head honcho at Hit and Run, manager of the Manchester Supergroup Levels and an eclectic DJ, Rich has spent over 15 years within the bass music scene. So thanks very much for doing this, Rich. It's exciting to get you on the podcast to speak about Hit and Run as a brand and about Hit and Run TV and you as a manager. Now, in the research to this, there's a lot of accolades against your name, but one thing that came up as a surprise to me, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were the very first DJ to play at a warehouse project. I did, back in yeah. 2006, just before Public Enemy. Indeed. And I came off stage to be hugged by Flavor Flav, who went, yo, man, that was that real shit, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> which was, uh, that is which absolutely was, incredible. Where, yeah. was, uh, where was the first warehouse project back in It was at Boddington's Brewery. So, which is uh, now, I mean, I'm sure it's, it's been knocked down, but it was literally next door to Strangeways. Um, so in between Strangeways and, um, well, I don't know what what's the MEN Arena called now. Let's just call it Manchester Arena. Yeah, but um, in that area, uh, area, and I remember it was a, there were really massive sort of corrugated iron buildings, and the sound was pretty awful. I remember as the series went on, they bought these huge black drapes to kind of dead, you know, make the acoustics a lot better. Hmm. But it was the first one, so. It was, uh, you know, there was obviously like anything, like you have a few teething issues and then as time goes on, you sort of sand them down. I mean, I'd certainly know about that recently, starting a new thing. But um, yeah, it was crazy. And I also got to meet Chuck D and have a chat with him, which was, who's an absolute hero to me. I mean, he'd be a fantastic politician. He's very articulate, very well-versed in politics and very revolutionary and forward-thinking guy. And I and actually, I know you wanted to talk to about levels, and I'm going to leap straight to it. But I I think with hip hop, Public Enemy were quintessentially to me what hip hop was about. You had on the one hand, you had like the conscious thinking side uh, encapsulated by Chuck D, and then you had the more fun party, maybe you know blings, you know bit of bling, bit of materialism, a uh, bit of bit of fun, you know lady, lady which flavor flavor represents. But they were sort of an equal balance, and that's what made uh, Public Enemy sort of fun without being too preachy. But then also, if you package something like that, it goes a lot further. And also, the music was amazing as well. And I kind of think that was something that we wanted to achieve with Levels is uh, have music with a message, but also a lot of fun. So Public Enemy were always uh, kind of one of the sort of blueprints for what I hoped and I'm at the end of the day, there's so many members. I'm sure they um, wanted to, you know, they, they all have their own ideas what Levels is or what they want Levels to be, but that was certainly a prototype for me. So uh, just, we, we might have skipped forward a tiny little bit there. So for those of you people that don't know what Levels are, or what Levels is, sorry, as I should say, you're the manager of the group. How would you describe uh, Levels? It is a collective of a generation of some of Manchester's MCs and DJs and artists 
um, that were sort of prevalent at at the time when we were sort of bringing it all together. There's you know, there was a certain group of people that started it, and um, and you know, a few members have come come and gone. We're now down to a dozen core members, and yeah, it's been you know, it's been a crazy journey. But yeah, it was just it was kind of a bit around the night that I run hit and run. A lot of them were like residents already. And, and I just decided there was a real sort of buzz in Manchester. And that was kind of one of the, not the first waves by any means, but in sort of bass music, it, there was quite a lot of hype and there was people starting to look up in Manchester. A few, a few of the members said, oh, maybe you'd want to manage it. And I kind of thought, well, well, maybe, but then I thought, let's like, you know, st- start it again and sort of bring in a few other key elements from you know so a few younger members as well but they're all people pretty much that i already had a relationship with we hit and run and been running seven eight years by that stage in manchester so a lot of them i sort of built that trust by booking them regularly giving them opportunities and so they were like yeah there needs to be someone who's mad enough to try and bring this together and and i think as well like especially hit and run because it was a monday night if you weren't playing, everyone was free on a Monday because mm. usually other people's gigs would be on a Friday or Saturday. So it meant on a Monday night, you kind of had everyone in Manchester that was sort of in the music, not, not, not there every week, but people would come through because it would almost be their weekend having, let's say, toured on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So people would come up and then they would be like, wow, you really are all mates. You know, you all know each other. And I think that's what people really like about the Manchester scene in our corner of it, and I think in other corners of it, because it is quite so compact, and we are actually, population-wise, a very small city. Everyone knows each other, and the hip-hop guys know the drum and bass guys, and you know the, a lot of the dubstep guys know the indie guys even, you know, and, and the house guys, because everyone has a cousin or or a friend or has worked with someone or, or whatever. So we already had that. I just wanted to kind of put a stamp on it and show that, you know, if you kind of put a brand on top of it, then that kind of officiates the fact that we were already like a big family. And, and you know, and, and, and there were certain people that, you know, maybe, you know, who deserved maybe to be called, who, who didn't, but that was almost a question of me looking at the chemistry and how that would work. I mean, it's difficult enough with so many strong personalities. I mean, everyone's an alpha male in their own way. I was going to touch on that. I've I've read in a a few interviews before that there's been a comparison between if you levels are sort of, if you took Wu-Tang Clan and the Happy Mondays and combine them, yeah. Um, which is what I, I read online and sort of that on on paper with 14 members sounds like wow to manage that and to try to keep everyone's ego in check has there ever been sort of is it has it been difficult at all at times I mean of course yeah <laughs> of course it has I, I, I mean it's for, for loads of reasons but but I would say I mean a lot of these a lot, a lot of members I mean I do consider them all like family you know and they are they are and and I think like with family you don't always like them but you always love them it, it's, it's it's a crazy journey and obviously especially when you're on tour and you're all tired and that there ha- there has been a lot of frictions but I kind of think again that's a testament to Manchester and the atmosphere here like big egos aren't suffered really in the sense that I love that about Manchester and one something that really attracted me to it when I came up here now I've always had a fairly southern stroke posh voice for someone that lives in Manchester but I love the fact that I came here without a penny to my name I was really broken I felt no one judged me just because I didn't have any money or status and that 
I, and having spent quite a bit of time in London, it's the complete opposite that. And I love the fact that the currency in Manchester is, are you funny? Have you got something about you? You know, we, we provide value to a conversation rather than like, you know, you have this powerful job or money or whatever. And, and I kind of think that's really healthy. And similarly as well, if anyone gets too big for their boots, the community will just be like, who, who, the, who the fuck do you think you are, dickhead? Do you know what I mean? And I yeah, think that's... Yeah a really, really healthy thing. We might have jumped ahead in the timeline there a little bit. So what we're going to do is go back to the beginning of Rich's musical history and how he nurtured a love for DJing and live events in his early years. I just wanted to touch on, um, just to go back maybe even further, as you said that you moved up to Manchester originally. You're from down south and I believe you went to university at Oxford? Yeah. Um, which is where the hit and run brand was sort of uh, was sort of originated from. Would you be able to give me sort of like what where did that stem from? Like when you were at Oxford, what was sort of the music scene like, or what what were you experiencing in Oxford that made you and I believe some of your colleagues want to start sort of a, a brand or a label? Well, I, I by the time I got to Oxford, I was already like completely in love with DJing. Um, but I actually would learn on my mates' decks. Um, okay, so let's take that back. It. So let's, where did you sort of cut your teeth from then? What was it that, what was your first experiences with DJing or were your foot in the door with um, live music? Uh, well, I mean, I've been playing trumpet since I was eight years old and I used to sing in the choirs and then I was, uh, you know, one of the reasons I went to like private school for free was because I was a music scholar. So I loved music, but then because I would be put under all this pressure to do it because they were like, you know, well, you know, you're going here for free. So you've got to do all these different bands and groups. I always love listening to music, but when I left school, I was almost like, I don't ever almost want to touch it again. My older brother and sister, especially my sister who works in music as well, she had always kind of fed me tapes. You know, even when I was quite young, I was, you know, into, I mean, certainly like things like Jamiroquai and like the Acid Jazz label. And then when I was about 13, 14, she gave me this mixtape called The Incredible Sound of Giles Peterson. And I absolutely loved that. And I think that was, he's been a huge guiding light to my musical journey. He's taught me so much about music, but I really like the fact that you could put a record from this was then the 90s next to one from the 60s or 70s. And that sort of eclecticism worked and you could see the relationships between the two things. And and then another kid uh, introduced me to Bookham when I was about 15. And I used okay. to love the those Earth sessions. And I remember when I was 16, um, I, I was really proud of myself because I bought the Ronnie Size Represent double album. Um, before it won the Mercury Prize. And I thought I was like, oh, it was really cool. But I really love that album. I still absolutely love that album. Anyway, I started going to sort of underground techno and trance raves and then drum and bass. And my mates had decks, we, you know, and I just ended up mixing. I bought uh, Inside the Machine by uh, Bad Company. And I just literally just, you know, you know, it was about six pieces of vinyl or whatever. And I just, end, you know, just end, would endlessly mix it. And I just got in, and that was in the vinyl days. And I also got, uh, I remember I had a huge wallet full of CDs and my car got broken into. Anyway, they took this huge thing, it smashed the window, took this huge thing of CDs. And I was like, right, I'm not going to get CDs anymore because this was pre-CDJs. You could only mix on vinyl. So I said, I'm going to buy every, all the music I love on vinyl and just learn to mix it all together. And So is this, sorry, just to put a time frame onto this. So you, this is 2000, uh, 2000, 2001. 
So this is just prior to going to Oxford. Yeah. And then when I went to uni, that's I got my first student loan and I bought a pair of tech. So my friend Riz, who started Hit and Run, first he heard about me was he was told that some guy was handing out like full sized posters as flyers because I I got them printed the wrong size or whatever. And then the first night went well and then Riz and two other friends had started Hit and Run. And I kind of think that was for Riz was he'd felt as a kind of like North London boy, you know, from a small house in near Wembley, he felt he decided to go to like the poshest college of them all, um, Christchurch, which is very like snooty. Um, So he was like, well, I don't want to be in any of these societies. I'm going to sort of create my own. And I kind of think that's what sort of hit and run became. Um, So the two lads who founded it and then, they did one night and then by the second night I played. And then after that, they were like, well, we, we need resident DJs. We want you to be one of them. And then, you know, I played pretty much every single one after that. And then after the first year, I then ran it for my second and third year. And it was really, really successful uh, at, in, in Oxford. Um, it used to sort of be fortnightly on a Wednesday at a club called The Cellar. And yeah, I mean, it, it would just like, we just book really kind of residents and locals at acts and it, it did really, really well. It was a great learning curve because we had all that sort of thing of that we were, we were suddenly like a really popular night, but because we were all like 19 club owners would still like try and like con us and rip us off and not take us seriously. And we were like, it doesn't matter whether we're 19 or 90. Like the fact is that, you know, we're making you a lot of money. You know, you need to kind of respect that. I, I really love Oxford. And we, we did like a lot of, you know, something that I've always tried to do. Um, but we did a lot of uh, fundraising for this thing called Oxford Access, um, which was kind of trying to raise money so that people could go to state schools and try and, um, you know, encourage people, you know, to think that not Oxford isn't not for them, if that makes sense. Um, That's one thing I was going to touch on because stereotypically from the outside perspective, uh, some like Oxford and, and Oxford University might have a, might have an image that people would construct. And then uh, for the people that aren't aware, Hit and Run is, well, I wouldn't want to put words into your mouth about your own brand, but sort of drum and bass, uh, grime, dub, reggae, not something that you might necessarily link with Oxford University. So I was going to ask, was there sort of any friction around the events? Not really. One of the things that I love about drum and bass and really attracted me to it is the fact that it is like, it is a very broad church with regards to certainly, you know, who used to listen to it and rave to it. And and I like that. And I, I love that about music is it does sort of dissolve, dissolve barriers. And that's something mm. that I love about music and love about drum and bass. People don't, care and it is a real melting pot on the dance floor and it's about uh, uh, do you love the music are you getting down are you shouting for a reload but you know i think it's important i think everyone's so much like oh i can't speak to that person because they hold that view and i think that's quite a dangerous road to go down because i always believe we have more in common than differences and and i remember my parents like when they found i got you know my brother and sister when they finally got this scholarship to go to the, these like schools this school called Sherborne for free, they were like, you know, don't ever think, because we know what some of the boys at this school can be like, you know, don't ever think you're better than anyone because you went to this school. And it, I've been brought up very much to make sure that you get on with everyone because they, there's absolute gems everywhere. And if you're ever prejudice stops you from seeing the sort of gold to be found everywhere, then you're only really hurting yourself. 
the all-encompassing outlet that you had instilled from your parents as you were explaining there do you think that is what made you move or uh, helped you move up to Manchester because I believe was it the year after you finished university you moved up yeah to straight after straight after it so I had like one summer where I was a, a, a international removal man and then I saved up and I really wanted to do this music course and Manchester was one of the best places to do it and I mean there's several reasons two of my musical heroes um who were a big influence on me, Mr. Scruff and Marcus Intellects. They both obviously based in Manchester. Um, and then also actually my dad's a Yorkshireman and my mother's Northern Irish. So I am actually a Northerner by blood, but I was born in Germany and raised around the, down, down South. So I was kind of, there's a classic history answer, which my girlfriend at the time uh, at uni, she did history and she was like, you, you could answer to any question about any you know, history question at any time. And in, in any country, and you can always say, well, of course, it's completely different in the North and the South. And similarly, like in America, like, you know, we know that, you know, A, the coasts, but the North and the South, and they're seen as very culturally and politically different. And I kind of thought, well, I'm never really going to get to know, you know, what England's really like, if I don't at least like, live in the North for a bit and see what it's like. And yeah, and I, and I thought I'd live up here for a year. I lived in the student village, which is just off Oxford Road. But I absolutely, I absolutely loved it. And after a year, I was I'd started getting like quite a lot of residencies. I was playing at Music Box, uh, Sankey's a lot. Um, you know, loads of clubs and bars that aren't there anymore. Um, you know, several in the Northern Quarter. And yeah, and I, and I really, and I really clicked. You know, it really, you know, for reasons I've mentioned before, um, I felt a real affinity with the place. So at this next part, we move on to a point where Rich meets a guy called Joe backstage whilst camping at Glastonbury. And at the time, Rich wasn't really aware of who this Joe was or how famous he was. But it eventually paved the way for him to move up to Manchester. And I think the other thing as well was I'd spent a lot of time. I mean, this is one of us pretty crazy stories. At Glastonbury, there were always like loads of Manx and Scousers about, especially Manx. And I, and I felt they were really, you know, they were, the very larger than life, especially at festivals, like very larger than life characters. And and especially one year when I was staying backstage because of my sister and I, I turned up on like the Wednesday, like wet behind the ears, like keen to get involved in, in Glasgow. And I remember asking the the, the the sort of marshal in the in the area and I was like, where should I put, pitch my tent? And he said, pitch your tent over there if you want a good night's sleep, but pitch your tent over there if you want, you know, if you want to have a fun Glasgow. So obviously I was like, literally just turned 18. I was like, right, I'm going to go there. And there was this huge like campfire and I sort of put, you know, a couple of tents away and then there were all these characters and there were like loads of like, you could tell they'd been going to Glastonbury for like 30, 40 years. And there was one guy called Joe and he was a really sweet guy. And I didn't think anything of him. Like I almost thought he was, just, you know, he was just like a nice guy and he'd always be going, oh, do you want a cup of tea and, and stuff like that. And anyway, at the time I'm a keen drummer and he, he would like hear me, like I'd get my drum out, you know, as you do at Glastonbury. And I remember one night uh Saint Germain were playing and they were really late to come on and I was I think it was like the jazz world stage and I was waiting for them and I started drumming and he he came running over to me and he was like oh oh it's you I like it's you from the you know the campsite oh you know that, 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 that's brilliant I was like oh nice one man do you know what I mean as it going on you'd, you'd be chatting to someone and they'd be like oh sorry mate I know we're having a chat but I just want to go and speak to Joe. And I was like, all right, okay. He's like, what's so special about Joe? He's like this really unassuming, just like sweet old man. 
And then I remember, I'll never forget it, but there was this huge fire area and everyone's sat around it. And I literally shout across the thing and I was like, Joe, you're not famous, are you? And then everyone like fell about in laughter. Like, you know, sort of like, oh, it's like the funniest thing I've said. And he was like, well, I was lead singer of a band called The Clash for 20 years. So like some people- Oh, it's Joe Strummer. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, and, and, he, and I was like, oh no. And then I went over to him and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Cause I was like, I've heard it. And I was like, yeah, that was the first thing I said. I was like, oh, right. Yeah, I've heard of them. And I went over. So you were at Glastonbury with Joe Strummer. You didn't realise it was Joe Strummer. Honestly, I had no idea who he was. I just thought he was like this really sweet old guy. Because when he heard me drumming, he come over and he was like, I've got to get you in the studio. I went over to him and I went, oh, I feel so embarrassed. He said, I said, be honest with you, I've heard of you, but I'm not. I love music from the 70s, but I'm not a punk fan. You know, I would never say I was a punk fan. You know, I didn't didn't know. And he said, honestly, Rich, it's been so good meeting you because... It means that I can still meet an 18 year old who has no idea who I am and we can just become friends. And do you know what I mean? And it's like, usually people are just up my ass all the time and I'm fucking sick of it. (laughs) And he said, and he said, every year I meet someone at Glastonbury, I know that I'm going to be in touch with the rest of my life. And this year that person's you, do you know what I mean? And which was like crazy. And then he took me on tour with him. Uh, like with Joe Strom and the Mescaleros, which was like really, because I went, I was on a bus for a couple of days. And then I remember he dropped me, he dropped me off home. Do you know what I mean? On the bus and like everyone was like waving, but he had loads of roadies who are Manx as well. Again, he was like a posh boy, diplomat sung. And I think we had a, like a bit of affinity, but he had like real love and affection and kind of like almost admiration for the British and the, the spirit of the British like working class. And I, he taught me a lot in the sense that it was weird because you'd see him on stage and he'd become like transfigured. He'd suddenly become this like God. And I felt it was a bit weird because he was just like beforehand, he was just like this like old, you know, this like sort of old guy asking people if they wanted a cup of tea. Do you know what I mean? And, 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 and that's the thing. And I know it sounds unbelievable now because especially when he died, which wasn't that long after, you know, I then realized like what a like God he was to people. Do you know what I mean? Like he, when people died, like people were like, you read like, you know, there were a hundred articles in the Guardian talking about like, how much of an influence he'd been and like what a kind of, you know, he was like up there with your Bowies and, you know, that sort of princes, that sort of level of like kind of adulation. And he had no ego. He had literally zero ego and he was like so down to earth. And yeah, and it was, uh, yeah, I feel incredibly privileged that, that I kind of got to meet him. And he taught me that when I meet people, who do have an ego, you know, like often like they've had a Beatport number one or whatever, and they're coming up and playing for me the first time. And I'm just like, honestly, like, you know, you have no business having an ego um, because I've met people, someone that was almost like a, you know, to, to a lot of people, a living, walking God. And he had zero ego and was just about service. You know, he wanted to like help people and look after people. So that has absolutely blown my mind because I love, I absolutely love The Clash. And for you to say that you were backstage with Joe Strummer and didn't realise it was Joe Strummer and he was so nice and down to earth and spent all that time with you and didn't have the ego. I mean, it's literally. Um, it's incredible. After spending time living down south in the UK, Rich moved to Manchester and explained what it was like to introduce a brand to a new city and some of the rises and pitfalls he had along the way. So you move up to Manchester. Yeah. And you're uh, set on staying here for a year, but you've now been up here for 17, 17 years. 17, yeah. God help so me. So what is it that you think 
what do you think it is that helped hit and run progress in Manchester to to the point where you've taken shows across the country and had hit and run shows across the country as well? I don't know. I was lucky. I lived up here for two years first because I kind of feel that I kind of made a conscious decision not to do nights elsewhere in the country, kind of probably quite a long time ago now, maybe like eight, nine years ago. I wanted to be, I wanted to feel like I was part of the community before I started anything because promoting is lots of things, but one thing you need is like a, is like a social network. You need people, you know, to, you know, to basically sort of friends to like support your cause and help you. Um, so I didn't start a night for a while and I was kind of very involved in sort of being resident at a night, night called Ape, which was a kind of like legendary night at Sankey's that ended up doing huge nights at the Apollo and warehouse projects and stuff. Um, you know, I was sort of busy sort of helping them and stuff. And then um, when I first moved up here, I pretty much very early on, I started getting sets at Poonana, which is a funny name, but it's uh, it used to be on Charles Street next to where Yes is now. But I used, they used to have, it was just a franchise and they had clubs all over the country. So... I started off, I used to DJ at the one in Oxford all the time. And when I moved up here, like the kind of one of the area managers, general managers was like, look, he's this new kid. He's kind of you like, you should give him a go because, you know, he's done a lot of DJing for us in Oxford and Cambridge and in London. And so, yeah, I started to play there. I, I must say I've got a pretty frosty reception from the other residents there because they were all a lot older than me. I think I would be like the first new like resident there a weekend for like 10, 15 years. The manager at the time, Sarah, she said to me, um, look, we have a night on a Tuesday all the way through to Sunday. We don't have a Monday night. We know that you love drum and bass. You know, you play drum and bass elsewhere. Why don't you start a Monday night? And I was like, well, I like the club, but, you know, to be honest with drum and bass night, the sound's not good enough. You know, you need like a bit of a rig. And she said, uh, okay, well, I'll tell you what, how much is the, how's the cheapest you can get a decent sound system for? And I met this guy called Dom who runs around six sound, like still friends today. And he was like, I'll do you like a, you know, two stacks and some decks, a hundred. 150 pounds a week so she was like okay you pay 75 we'll pay 75 and we'll get this thing going and then yeah it, it just went every monday night and at the time i was just about like booking because i was like there's so much good like djs and acts and mcs in manchester let's just book them all the time and that kind of goes back to the fact one of the reasons why we did try and expand to places like york and we had like a year and a half of doing like okay there and we've done nights in leeds and huddersfield and other places but I really believe that, especially, I mean, I like to think hitting on special, but there's like a drum and bass and dubstep night or bass music night in every city or town around the country, right? So if you're going with your own, like, I'm going to book drum and bass and dubstep and you sort of come to some other city, when I was going there, I was just having to meet people from York and, you know, sort of like almost befriend the other promoters. But of course, your arrival, you know what I mean? And you'll always be a sort of alien in that scene. And I kind of just thought like, you know what, the people in York, you know, the biggest drum and bass night in York should be from, you know, run by people from York and the biggest drum and bass night from Leeds should be from people who are like living in Leeds. And and so I decided, to start, right, I'm just going to do Manchester. And so that's one of the reasons why I didn't just come up here and start a night. I was like, I want to become part of, you know, get friends up here, you know, start living here, start working up here. Um, and then, yeah, we, we started at exactly the same time as it happened as like, as as the warehouse project. I mean, I remember playing at that, that public enemy night and then running outside to exit flyer it with the very first flyers for hit and run as everyone streamed streamed outside. 
no way so that was a good bit of promotion there as well for uh, for you and it was just the right time so you were doing the residency at Ponana and you'd put some money into uh, the the system and stuff yourself did you ever have a fear of failure when you were when you were first starting out on that Monday night was there ever anything in the back of your mind where you thought oh crap what happens if this doesn't this doesn't take off or what happens if nobody turns up or anything like that good question I can't remember ever really kind of thinking that I think uh yeah I don't know I think it 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 gone sort of so well at Oxford I probably but I was very aware of the fact that like one of the reasons is really easy to be a student promoter if you're at the uni at the time and so I think like in a way it was good for me that I wasn't a university university student because it made you having to work a lot harder but I remember from quite early on, we re- I would tell you who was a, a big part of like making it uh, go well. It's like, now this sounds crazy to say, but at the time, when it came to drum and bass MCs, and we're talking 2006 here, like Ton Piper was very much, you know, considered like almost like the only drum and bass MC. And, you know, that sounds crazy because obviously like Trigger and DRS, but I remember at the time he was just uh, every sort of big drum and bass night ton was was hosting it and again that sort of thing of like mondays being kind of the industry's night off so you get a lot of like other djs come down on a monday night he came down to the third one and even though there was probably i remember those early days i mean we'd probably get in the first year we were probably averaging 100 120 people a week you know and we'd often be just the top floor that's again something of advice i give to promoters they go what you know what are the certain things you say and i say like start small just start so small that even if you get 50 people in there, you know, you start in a small little room, you know, because people go, when you go to a night, people go, how was it? One of the first things people go like, oh, it's absolutely packed in there. But if you're, if the club is the size of a shoebox, it's not very difficult to make a club absolutely packed. But you're still going to go home going, oh, it was really sweaty in there. And that creates, creates a buzz. And anyway, third week, Ton came down. And he was like, oh, I really like this, you know, and he jumped on the mic, he was wicked. And he was like, right, I'll, I'll come and be resident, but just pay me what you can every week, you know. Um, and, you know, sometimes that wouldn't be very, very much money. But I think having him was a big cosign. And then I was lucky because I think like whether, you know, few people probably had a problem with it. But I was like, you know, I was was on as was like official resident of the warehouse project and ape. So I'd started to have like a bit of a profile myself. And yeah, just like the first sort of two or three went well enough. And I just kind of thought like stick at it. And and I think I've been really lucky that I've had dozens of parties that have lost money. You know, I've probably, you know, I've had several parties that lost a lot of money, but I've never really put on a dead night. You know, when you need, you know, the kind of in the sense that like people haven't gone, they go, well, gone. oh, it's a bit quiet tonight. But it's, you know, those sort of nights where you walk in and there's like no one there and then people just walk out and walk out again. I'm lucky that it's always been busy enough to be a rave and have a night of it as long as you know you're not too busy so i think that's like something that's like sustained it and yeah i just kind of i i I sort of i enjoyed it and i think by the time i remember the first freshers so what would have been 2007 and we did a night i can't even remember who played but i remember that first freshers week monday it was just like absolutely like a, it was a zoo and i remember dom coming downstairs dom the sound system guy he was sort of like picking me up and spinning me around he was like you did it you've done it do you know what i mean and and i remember that uh year as well the very first birthday we had a uh, box cutter who's amazing 
like dubstep pioneer and uh, Alex Perez play. And I remember Alex Perez turning up with uh, Mark Sinslex. And then the bouncer's going, it's too busy. You like, you can't let Marcus in here. And obviously Marcus <laughs> be one of my heroes. And I was like, and I was like, please, you've just got, I know it's too busy, but you've got to let him in. Like, do you know what I mean? I'd like, always oh, just like, it was like absolute nightmare scenario. Marcus being very like sanguine and down to earth was like, you know, don't, don't worry about it. And then as soon as he got in, I like bought him a drink and, you know, I was like really, really flustered. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I suppose like anything, you have to be pretty bloody minded. And I think you have to also, it has to not be about the money. And I know promoting is very interesting role in music as it's kind of where the rubber meets the road. It's where like the art meets the business, you know? I, and I think there's loads of times where like if I wasn't doing it because I sort of love it and can't imagine doing anything else, I would have packed it in because, you know, it has caused me like a lot of like financial difficulties and there has been like real ups and downs. And But and I've been really lucky when, you know, my luck has had to change and it's really been like, wow, we are in the shit here. And, um, you know, the next night has like been absolutely has been absolutely packed but i just think building it organically like that first year and always kind of another thing i say to promoters is build a night which is sort of residence first which is a good night because people want to come and play and people want to come whether you've got a headliner or not make the headliner like the cherry on top of already a beautiful sunday but i know for a fact that a lot a lot of people will be upset that, for example, like, I don't want to name names, but, you know, there's a lot of artists that I've been booking since their very first booking in Manchester for 10 years. So if they have the choice of, you know, like their agent will, they'll be instruct their agent that if someone says like, oh, I want to book like Khan or Komodo or, or Lensman, these people that I've booked since their very first booking and someone else says like, oh, I want to book them, their agent will come to me and they were like, oh, before, you know, before they play for anyone else like they would always rather play for you so because you've got that relationship you know and i'm like well if you know i haven't got anything on i was like go, you know like go and play for them do you know what i mean but i've put those people first and i think having a big monolith like warehouse project which is fantastic for the city in terms of like musical profile and stuff and i think actually is like good in the sense that it causes promoters to have more originality like like what else are you bringing to the tape like table otherwise you're just a a kind of a newer version of something that already exists and i like to think that i'm really supportive of uh young knights and young artists in the city and loads of them i ask to come and you know book their residence or do room twos i think it's going to be you know we're all going to be in a mad situation when all the raves come back because like everyone's literally not i mean Everyone in the music industry has had it bad, but I think there's a lot of people like promoters and sound engineers, they've all relied on public congregation. Now, as an artist, you can still sell merch and sell tunes. Do you know what I mean? And streaming, and it's not the same. And of course, their the majority of their money that they make is off perform is off shows. So they've been completely screwed. But especially like promoters and stuff like they have we haven't been able to earn a single penny so a lot of people are just going to go like just put the same old same old uh you know or just i know like my guaranteed hitters and i and i just worry because that whole mentality of just booking what you know works or what worked before is actually really dangerous to the culture and again like and that goes back to like not always caring about money 
is I, I've had some of my favorite nights are nights where I've lost money. Like, you know, some of them I've lost quite a lot, but because... I want to touch on this. I don't want to cling to a narrative that you feel uncomfortable talking about, but a lot of people will be used to seeing on social media and on seeing like a finished product. So maybe an after movie or social clips or photos from a night that's really packed, not necessarily hit and run, but just everywhere online. But they might not see the other side of it, which is like the hard work or or the constant plate spinning or, or, the, or the slightly like, as you've said there, like maybe not every night's a hit. Have you ever had any sort of negative experiences in the industry? Yeah, I mean, it is because it is, there's like sometimes it's just like, wow, there's things that are so out of your control. I mean, I remember having a sold out night at Factory on, in a December and DJ Fresh was booked to headline and he just got snowed in on the M6. It was like one of those freak snowstorms where this, you know, he was just on the hard, he had to stop the car because the snow was so heavy that they, even like the motorways got like, do you know what I mean? to go, like covered in snow. Yeah. And then you had a, had a full club of eight, 900 people going like, where the hell's, you know what I mean? And people really kicking off and like slagging you off online. And it's just like, how on earth is like that in my control? Do you know what I mean? And and these sort of things that are out of control often cause you a lot of, um, you know, you know, they, they cost you a lot of money and a lot, a lot of stress. And I, and I think like anyone with online, but as a promoter, like if someone complains online, you know, I always try and, you know, take that person seriously and make them feel they're heard. I, I think it's a disaster if you just like ignore them. And also as well, like, you know, you don't always get it right. I mean, when we've had complaints about hidden, about being too busy, like the club's never oversold. Like I've never oversold rave, but unfortunately if you've got three floors and you've sold 1200 tickets, which is the capacity and then 1200 worth of people all want to be on the same floor at the same time, then you have problems. Do you see what I mean? So, you mm. know, I do, you know, I'm very, very sensitive to the fact that, you know, when, 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 when people complain and it really does affect you, but yeah, it is like a really, it is like a really, really challenging industry. And I think again, it's part of being like subjective, you know, you kind of see things from your point of view, but you know, I do think promoters get like a pretty rough time, you know, they're pretty low down the hierarchy and actually they always have the most to lose on a night. You're always the last person to get paid. But once everyone else has paid, all the money's yours, if that makes sense. But, you know, like the the cost, the margins, especially on sort of the music that we sort of put on. Um, I mean, I, I'm not someone that I spend money on design. I always try and make sure the flyers look good and stuff. But I'm not one for ever like big promo campaigns. Don't really do sponsored posts very often. Um, all the money I spend is really on artists and the club. And honestly, like the margins are so, so, you know, like, like tight, you know, it's like literally like 10, 20% of people, you know, like for example, Mint Lounge is 500 cap, you know, you need to get 400 people in to break even. And, you know, it, it, five, you know, 450 and it says that's last 50, hundred. Is that really how close the margins are with that? They are, man. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. So it's like, it is really, really. And, and if you have like, for whatever reason, a, a bad day, and you only get 250 people in, like, you know, you're starting to lose like two, three grand, you know? So it's, it's, it is like the birthday I just did. So I'm really glad I pulled it off, but the hit and run 13th birthday, that was the most expensive night I'd ever put on my life because basically the birthdays, I just go, I book it until I think like, wow, that's a lineup I want to see. And mm. then I don't worry about too much about the money. I just want it to be like a really, really special night. But that, that this year, it was just like Corona was starting to creep up into the headlines and stuff. 
and I was all on track. But then with 24 hours, 48 hours to go, I was like still seven, eight grand off breaking even, you know, and you just, you know, and then the, the narrative and the news, I mean, this was, uh, I've got the poster here. When was it? The 7th of March. You know, right, so that was right just yeah, before the first and, you know, lockdown. Yeah, and it was, it was start, you know, by that stage, it was really kicking off in Italy. And, you know, and I was like, wow, you know, and by that stage, like, you've paid for it all or you've taken, you know, to, it is honestly, it's like, a, it is a crazy, crazy sport. And I think, like, if I'd, I'd say anything, especially for, like, young promoters, like, if you're a mate, buy a ticket. Do you know what I mean? Because you might not, you know, and I've had bizarre, like people, you know, at the night coming up to me, go, like, oh, Rich, you know, you'll be proud of me. I snuck into your night tonight. And I'm less like, you're stealing from me. You do realize that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, I, I said like, fair enough if you've done it, but to come up to me and brag about it, you clearly don't understand like how difficult this is. So, Rich, just to bring us back up to the present day, we've had 14 years of hit and run. The biggest speed bump in the road for all live events this year and last year was COVID. As you know, it put a stop to millions of jobs around the country. And as someone who was used to putting on monthly events, what did it do to hit and run as a brand? And how did hit and run TV come to light from that? Well, I think it was a bit of a shock. Um, well, how long it's all lasted. Um I mean, in retrospect, of course it should have done, even if you look at the history of pandemics and so forth. So we had a night on the 20th and I decided to pull it, even though the you know we could have actually done it, but I just kind of felt the government's not acting responsibly, so, but we should, you know, and that's one of the things I think a lot of promoters shut down that weekend, um, you know, which, which again, so we were like the first to shut and, you know, we'll be the last to open. Yeah, but I didn't think it's to say so long. I kind of thought, well, three months should be okay you know as long as i kind of get june which is a really key time um to be a promoter i do like a lot of work with like festivals and it's like they have the end of term party which usually sells out and that kind of keeps me going through the like the lean summer months until things start up in september but yeah it just seemed to go sort of longer and longer i mean i you know i was on you know i've had to be on universal credit for the first time in my life you know i've never claimed a single benefit in my life before until then but it just you know i've kind of depleted my fun savings after a few months and you know i was like right you know i'm gonna have to um you know bite the bullet and you know obviously with uh, a partner and a, and a kid on the way and, you know I, you know i had to get my rent paid yeah it, it has it has been tough i mean at the start it was kind of a kind of naively think it wouldn't start that long it was like nice to have a break i've run pretty much a weekly event for 14 years or whatever you know and that you know and i've been promoting for 20 so actually to start off just to have like a bit of time with breather and to spend our last few months like as a couple before becoming parents so on that level money's been tight and that's been quite difficult because i felt coming into covid i i after 15 years of doing it pretty much i was finally sort of cracked the code really you know i, I kind of felt that really i mean you were at the warehouse project pretty much every show i was doing it hidden was selling out you know i'd almost kind of thought like you know i'd and knew really when to throw a big party and when mm. not to, you know, which is half the half the battle. So, you know, I was kind of like, wow, like I can keep on doing this crazy job because, you know, I'm hopefully elevating and warehouse project because the the noise night had gone so well. They were like, right, do you want to do a, a big a three room warehouse project in December? And I was like, you know, wow, you know, and you know that I really felt I was sort of going to that next level from being a kind of 
independent promoter to maybe I've been I've been paying myself a wage for the first time, which I'd never done. You know, I just took money as dividends when it was there, and the rest of it I kept in the company. But yeah, it was it was a sort of real slap of the face. So I've been speaking to Neuron, who you know is a company that I've used many times and one of the best what they do in the country. I feel, and they approached me because they've they've pivoted and really proud of them for doing so from being an audio business to being audio visual one to try and get the streaming thing. But they were like, look, why don't we go into business together to do hit and run TV and will provide like the technical equipment and expertise and you know, make sure it's a really polished product. And then you do the booking the lineups and the marketing and the promoting and, and that, and it would be a good team. And it took a while, you know, often those early stages, you know, they, they take a while, but we were all set to go. And we did our first one on Twitch at the, right at the end of October on Halloween. And then we were all literally all primed, all guns blazing from November to just like start being like a Twitch channel. But literally as we did it, Twitch sent a email to all creators going, look, we haven't had problems in the past, but suddenly basically all the like the licensing and publishers are just and sort of people that own and rights to music and realized that all this music was getting paid on Twitch and no one was getting fairly recompensed for it. So they were like, you can keep on, you know, we, we can't condone you streaming music anymore and the reality of it was you can get away with streaming like a live stream but sometimes it will get pulled because you're playing music that you don't have the rights to but usually what happens is the vod or the video on demand it will go up in the archive and they will mute the sections that of music that people claim the rights to and obviously like there's a sort of shazam style you know algorithm finders waveform finders and they find out sort of mute large sections and then often if there's too many sections that have to be muted they'll just pull the whole thing down so it's really difficult and and it gave me a neuron and sort of well it took a few months but and there was a guy called benjamin vice who's been really instrumental and you know sort of bumping hands with him and he was like well why don't we actually do it so that we you know we set up our own thing so we don't we don't have dangers of getting pulled and do it all properly so we've got like a vimeo pro account which kind of does all the back end of it and then we set up a website and then we've got a prs license now for those who don't know a prs license it's basically anyone that plays like modern recorded music you have to buy a license so if it's a festival you pay quite a big one or if you're a coffee shop and you want to play the radio you still have to pay like three four hundred pounds a year and what they do is they kind of to collect as much data as possible and they work out sort of what percentage you know of your songs being played and so every time you get played compared on how big the license is and how many people listen to it you get one or two p for a track and if it gets played on radio one you might get like 50 60 quid or, or whatever so one way to get around the muting and the pulling down is if you pay for a prs license so we bought a prs license and we means that we have a certain amount of streams over six months and then at the end of the six months you know or we or we go over that we have to get a, a the same one or, or a larger one and so yeah we we try to look at all the problems that there are which we see with streaming it's the fact that you know you get muted if you've you you know, if you play a track that you know isn't written by the guy who's playing it himself um and then the other thing as well is i completely get it going back to what i was saying of uh, people thought that the pandemic would be over in a few months but everyone jumped on not everyone a lot of people decided not to but a lot of people jumped online to do streams and you know they didn't think about the fact they just put it out there you know everyone's just like chasing the numbers 
which I get in the social media age, but at the end of the day, they're putting their craft out there for free, which normally people would have to pay 10, 15 pounds to watch in a club. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's a lot of these people, like we had uh, Chimpo and Binga do a stream the other day. And like Binga said, I've not done one of these streams yet because I don't feel comfortable put not having a value put on my craft that he spent 20 years developing. So there's a kind of disconnect there between, you know, the value that the DJs are bringing and just by charging three pounds a month, which we don't think is very much. And then also giving a platform so people can donate and the donations all go to the artists, whether they're the DJs, the MCs or the VJs. And then the subscription goes to neuron and hit and run. And the whole idea is that that sustains like what we're doing. Um, but it's just to get people thinking about putting a value on that and trying to build a system where, where actually, hopefully, because you know, as time goes on, you're going to have more and more amazing shows archived. There's still free shows every week, so it's a platform, and we can give to new artists to develop them, and the shows are up for a week, and then they get archived. So, so I just wanted to, uh, yeah, I wanted to uh, break that down. Your um, sort of your itinerary for each month of the show so from what i understand is it two free shows a month and two paid shows a month that you're putting out no it's two free shows a week and um and at the moment about two paid shows a month and uh hopefully that will come go up yeah that that that, that, that's kind of the idea really so monday we have sit and bun which is there's loads of amazing bar djs in, in manchester just djs and you know we have a real wealth of them and a lot of them like Will Tramp, amazing DJ, resident home electric and warehouse project, you know, and he's not DJed for a year. And I'm just like, this is crazy. You need to, you know, come next week, play for three, you know, he's play on Monday for three hours, um, you know, share your amazing record collection with the world. And obviously we're all hoping that we go back to doing shows in June, but who knows what the road will be. And hopefully we integrate the two and, and be able to sort of connect what's happening in Manchester with with people all over the world. You've touched on it there, and obviously we haven't got a crystal ball at the moment. And and the the recent news, just to clarify, we've recently had the news that of the the, the path out of lockdown, and, and June the twenty first is the is the golden date that potentially nightclubs and events and everything can be going back ahead. And I know you said before, like people, they would sort of come up to you and be like, oh, I've snuck into your event or oh, I've done this or that. Sort of what behavior would you like to see when it comes to June that there might not have been prior to the lockdown and prior to COVID? Well, I think it's going to be amazing. I think it's going to be a bit, you know, weird almost, um, you know, like putting on an old pair of shoes or something for, for, for all of us. I, I mean, I think an obvious thing is, you know, not... I've I've kind of said like already on Facebook like don't ask me for guest list but if you were someone that worked for the NHS like do hit me up and I will like you know because you definitely deserve some free tickets I think more more than anything I, I don't think this is just to the punters I think this is like to everyone from like the DJs the MCs to you know the bouncers is like is let's just all realize that we all need each other like the chemistry of a night relies on every single person in there and we're like this big ecosystem together let's Hmm. all just think that no one is sort of bigger than the other person and just you know again just you know be polite to people because 
these energies all bleed into each other, you know, it like, you know, someone being rude to a bar staff might mean that they're then rude to the next customer. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, and, you know, just be nice to nice to everyone. We've all in our own way had like a lot of shit to deal with this last year. And it, I, it, there's not a single person in our level, in our ecosystem that's had like an easy time of it, you know, so right, Rich. yeah, let's call it a day. That thanks for that. That has been absolutely incredible. You've been amazingly truthful and candid, and it's just fantastic to hear the history that you've got with Hit and Run and the journey that you've been on personally, and the journey that the company and brand has been on, and just hearing all the little stories along the way. Nice one, Connor. Thanks, thanks for having me. Best thanks. of luck with it all, man. Really look forward to hopefully seeing you at a rave or a dance when we get in, back in, in June. state June twenty first. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And if not, I will be tuning in to the uh, Hit and Run TV episodes. Until then, wicked man. Take care, bro. All the best. Listen, man, I've told you once, I've told you twice. You're not on the list. All right.